This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Low Countries Radio, a collaboration between Republic of Amsterdam Radio and the Low Countries website. Celebrating Flemish and Dutch history and culture and its impact on the world today. When it comes to looking at languages, we humans cannot help but to try and fit them into neat categories. We talk about a specific language as if all the people who share a common tongue therefore share an identity that non-speakers of that language will never fit into. For example, as a non-Spanish speaker, when I think of people speaking Spanish, I cannot help but conjure ideas of passion, exuberance, salsa dancing, liberal time management, and heat. Yet Spanish speakers are as diverse as any other group of humans. Does somebody living in the hilly outer suburbs of Madrid really share an identity with somebody catching a bus to work in Buenos Aires or walking in the foothills of the Andes, besides that the words they form to communicate come from a recent route? The reality is that languages are fluid, not static, and their fluidity represents the fluidity of human movement and the growth of human societies. All languages are diverse, and how they are used by people speaking them changes not only from country to country, but province to province, city to city, and even street to street. The Low Countries are representative of this, and it can be argued the fluid nature of languages is perhaps on greater display across the various societies of this region than most others. Despite covering a relatively small area, the position of this beloved corner of Europe sees it tucked neatly into one of the major crossroads of the continent and, these days, of the world. Over history, the languages spoken and developed in the region truly reflect the fluid nature of how humans constantly have passed in and out of the Low Countries, carrying such important things as linguistic tendencies in both directions. The Low Countries comprises the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, and part of northern France, and as such, Dutch, German, French, Frisian, and any number of seemingly random derivations of them all abound throughout. Even specifying what we mean by the Dutch language is, in truth, problematic. Firstly, there are multitudes of dialects and differences just across the Netherlands, Put somebody from Limburg on TV and people watching it in Holland are probably going to be reading the subtitles rather than listening to them speak. Secondly, at any one time we can speak of Algemeen Nederlands, General Dutch, standardised in the Netherlands by the Dutch Language Union and which was formerly called ABN, Algemeen Beschaft Nederlands, General Civilised Dutch. I guess they changed it because at some point they realised that people speaking dialects 
could also be civilized. We can also then look across the border into Belgium and see that although Dutch is an official language there, the Flemish dialect and identity are certainly very different. There are a few ways that the Dutch language can be broken down across the Low Countries, but for various historical reasons, the main one being the colonialism of the Dutch from the 1580s until the 1960s, the Dutch language and its influences can also be found all around the world. In this episode, we are going to explore where Dutch comes from and look at how the history of immigration into the Low Countries impacted the development of the language. On top of that, we're also going to look at how, despite not being particularly widely spoken around the world, the humble Dutch language, with all its uncivilized variations, has influenced not only other languages such as English and Russian, but also imprinted itself into the cultural and geographical landscapes of every continent. That's right. In this episode of The Low Countries Radio, you are going to listen to an Australian do his best to explain Dutch. Geweldig. To begin our exploration of the Dutch language, we are first going to travel way back in time to map out its origins and discuss the major political and cultural developments which impacted its emergence. This is going to be a whirlwind, and we are about to crash through several thousands of years in about five minutes, so hold on to your underpants. Throughout history, the areas comprising the Low Countries have seen different groupings of people come and go, and as a result, the languages spoken there have also varied widely. For the purposes of this story, the first important event occurring around the year 500 BCE was when Germanic farmer people began to move from northern Germany into the Low Countries and brought with them their Proto-Germanic languages. The theoretical language group that we call Proto-Germanic had begun to emerge in northern Europe sometime in the first millennium BCE. Over time and through migration and assimilation, branches of it gradually developed, split, changed, and the foundations for modern languages, including German, English, Dutch, Norwegian, Swedish, and Danish were laid. Of course, those Germanic farmers who arrived in the swampy low countries didn't just walk into uninhabited terrain. The Celtic tribes who already lived there, such as the Menapii, spoke Gallic tongues. But slowly, as these Germanic peoples, such as the Batavii and the Cananophates, arrived in the River Delta, those original inhabitants were either forced to move or were destroyed slash assimilated into new identities. These new identities were not completely Germanic. Many of the original Celtic peoples and their cultural traits remained, and in modern Dutch, there are still lingering remnants of ancient Gallic words. These include Eiser, meaning iron, Umbacht, meaning trade, and a very well-known one, Reich, meaning realm. Fast forward from there a mere 450 years or so to 58 BCE when Roman legions under the command of Julius Caesar invaded Gaul, which is pretty much today's France and everything in the Low Countries south of the Rhine River. Four centuries of Roman occupation ensued by which the Gallic and Germanic peoples who were known as Cisrenani, meaning this side of the Rhine, adopted varying degrees of so-called Volga Latin. 
In some cases, they completely abandoned their old tongues, while in other Germanic societies, they adopted important everyday Latin words within their languages. These include the words for street, strata to strat, cellar, cellarium to kelder, and what must be one of the most widely used everyday words, particularly from the 2020 to 2021 period, wine, vinum to vine. The 3rd century CE saw the beginning of the disintegration of Roman power and administration in the Low Countries, and slowly over the next few centuries, the door opened for the rise of a people known as the Franks. Frankish societies were themselves varied, and different Frankish groups emerged and spread in different regions across the empire they came to rule. One of these groups was the Salian Franks, who emerged from the Low Countries around Zeeland and Brabant, and pushed south in the process of building a kingdom, establishing a capital city in a town called Parisius, later Paris, in 508 CE. 300 years later, the king of the Franks, Charlemagne, had himself crowned as the emperor in 800 of an extensive domain that encompassed most of today's Western Europe, bordered by Friesland in the north, central Italy in the south, the Pyrenees in the west, and the Danube River in the east. As regards the Low Countries, this brought two distinct language groupings under one administration. As Marinissen Janssen wrote in her Regional History of Dutch, quote, In the Frankish realm, the civilizations of two different peoples, the Autochtonous Gallo-Romance population and the Franks, the Germanic conquerors, ran into each other. As a result, a multilingual, multicultural society developed in the southern part of Flanders, central Belgium, and northern France. However, within this society, cultural shifts gradually occurred, related to the structure of the population and the cultural orientation of its elites. The emergence and the final fixation of the Germanic Romance language boundary was a result of this development. End quote. So if the multilingualism of Belgium has ever piqued your curiosity, this is one of its greatest and most important roots. Charlemagne's empire was split up into three major regions by his grandsons. The two largest were West Francia and East Francia. These lay the foundations for the states of France, where Romance languages predominated, and Germany, where Germanic languages were the norm. The area in between them, Middle Francia, encompassed the Low Countries and stretched from the North Sea to the Alps. The diverse peoples who inhabited it would have spoken languages that reflected the continuing influence of both Romance and Germanic tongues. By the 10th century, Middle Francia had been absorbed into the Eastern and Western Kingdoms, which came to be ruled by the German Emperor and the French King, respectively. At around this point, we can start to point at a language grouping specific to the Low Countries, Old Low Franconian. This is basically Old Dutch, and includes an array of related dialects like Brabantian, West Flemish, East Flemish, Hollandic, Zeelandic, South Helderish, and others. These were differentiated from the other major Germanic language groupings, being Old Frisian, Old Saxon, and Old High German. And even though Old Dutch is the progenitor of modern Dutch, it is the nature of the swampy Low Countries that all of these old languages mixed and flowed to varying extents in different regions. For instance, 
people in the northeast of the Netherlands today speak a Dutch that is more influenced by Old Saxon. Frisian itself is still its own language that is spoken in the north of the country, while in places like Limburg, there are people who use similar consonant shifts as what developed in Old High German, but not in Old Dutch. The confusion wrought by this intermingling of languages can be seen in the famous Eben alle Vogeler poem. This text was written at some point in the 11th century by a monk in Kent, England. It is thought that the monk at the time was copying a book and had started using a new pen. As such, he needed to test that this new pen worked properly, so in the back, jotted down a line in Latin, and then directly underneath it, a translation of what he'd written into the vernacular. He wrote, This is in my best old low Franconian. Heben alle fogale nestus hagunen, hinasse hic and a tu, wat unbieden venu. Translated into English, this line means something like, Have all birds begun nests, except me and you? What are we waiting for? Beautiful. For a long time, it was believed that this poem was written in West Flemish and was the oldest surviving piece of Old Dutch writing. It's still included in the official Canon of Dutch History, which is the Dutch government guideline for what history should be taught in school. But despite this, older examples of Old Dutch have since been discovered, and there is even debate today about whether or not this poem is actually written in Old Dutch or Old Kentish. The point is that the origins of the Dutch language reflect the history of the Low Countries as a whole. The place where the rivers meet the sea is also a confluence of cultures, influences, ideas, and the many various words used to express them. By the end of the 16th century, a revolt against the Spanish Habsburg overlords resulted in Spanish imperial troops occupying much of the southern Low Countries, including the biggest commercial hub in Western Europe at the time, Antwerp, in 1585. The Low Countries then split politically into two entities, the Northern Provinces, which began identifying as a Dutch-speaking Protestant Republic, and the Southern Provinces, which remained Catholic, multilingual, and ruled by the Spanish. The Northern Republic was formed out of seven provinces, which maintained many aspects of their own unique cultures and dialects, while setting sail on a course as a unified Dutch state from then on. The Republic was economically prosperous and religiously liberal compared to most other places, and major social disasters across Europe, like the Counter-Reformation, multiple pogroms, and the Thirty Years' War in Germany, resulted in an explosion of immigration towards it. This included thousands of war refugees, particularly from the northeast German region, but also from the southern Low Countries, from Brabant and Flanders. This was definitely a case of many wealthy people coming from what they believed were the most advanced, prosperous and civilised towns of the Low Countries in the south, and bringing their ideas of social interaction and haute couture with them to what they thought was a more provincial north. Many of the immigrants who arrived in the wake of the Spanish occupation in the south were non-Catholic groups like Lutherans, Huguenots, who were Calvinists, Anabaptists, and Jews. All of these groups would have had an impact on the types of Dutch that were spoken in the northern provinces. 
This was particularly the case in and around Amsterdam, which took on the industry that had departed Antwerp and transformed into an urban metropolis, the centre of world trade and an international melting pot. Thousands of Sephardic Jewish people had fled Iberia and spread across Europe after the expulsions of the Jews from Spain and Portugal in the 1490s. Others remained behind, however, officially converting to Christianity, but continuing to practice Judaism in secret. Some of these so-called crypto-Jews also moved to the Low Countries when the Republic came into being, where there were greater possibilities for them to make money in the developing major trading ports there. These were wealthy and well-connected people who were allowed to practice their religion openly in this new, relatively liberal nation. These Iberian Jews staunchly supported the House of Orange in the war against the Spanish, and their international trading contacts and proficiency in languages soon saw them wielding significant influence amidst the upper financial and cultural elite of Amsterdam. In 1675, construction was completed in the rapidly expanding commercial capital of the largest synagogue in the world, known as the Portuguese Synagogue. Guess who built it? From the mid-17th century, however, there was another wave of Jewish immigration which began arriving in the Netherlands, and Amsterdam in particular, from Eastern Europe, as people fled from pogroms in Poland and from the ravages of the Thirty Years' War in Germany. These Ashkenazi Jews were poorer than their Sephardic counterparts, and were only allowed to settle in the city because of financial guarantees provided to them by the richer Sephardic community. Their relative poverty meant that they could not afford to buy the town's citizenship, which was required in order to become a guild member and legitimately take part in almost every profession. As a result, there were only limited opportunities for these Ashkenazi Jews to work, and they were restricted to trades without guilds, such as the diamond industry, where they found work as cutters and polishers. Many Ashkenazi Jews also worked on the street as traders, market stall holders, clothes dealers, or as household servants. By the time the Portuguese synagogue was completed, there were already twice as many Ashkenazi as Sephardic Jews in Amsterdam, and by the end of the 18th century, there were around 3,000 Sephardim and more than 20,000 Ashkenazi inhabitants. Most of the Jews lived in a newer area built just outside the former walls of the medieval city, which became known as the Jodenhoek, the Jewish Quarter. It was also a trendy area with artists such as Rembrandt van Rijn, who made his home and work studio there. The population of the Jewish Quarter was split around 50-50 between Jewish and non-Jewish residents, meaning that linguistic variety in the neighborhood would have been apparent from door to door. Most of the Eastern European Jews spoke dialects of Yiddish, which is itself a Germanic language, but that has been heavily influenced by Hebrew, Aramaic, and Slavic tongues. Dutch and Yiddish began to interact with each other to such an extent that as the 20th century anthropologist Andrian Prince wrote, by the 19th century there was, quote, a variety of Dutch that only Jews know, and there is a variety of Yiddish that can pass for Yiddish only in the Netherlands, end quote. Yiddish was widely spoken in Amsterdam until the late 18th century when the Netherlands was occupied by revolutionary French armies, and on the 2nd of September 1796, Jews were proclaimed to have equal rights as other citizens. When the Kingdom of the Netherlands was established in 1815, the new king, Willem I, 
continued with the emancipation of the Jews that had begun under the French. However, as part of his language reforms, Yiddish was banned from being spoken in synagogues and schools in an attempt to unify all of the citizens of his multilingual kingdom into a more Dutch-centric society. As historian Justus van der Kamp wrote, quote, Jews were no longer looked upon as a Jewish nation with a different language. They were simply regarded as poor people who spoke poor Dutch, end quote. Despite all of this, there are many loanwords from Yiddish and indeed Hebrew which are in common use in modern-day Dutch. Interestingly, however, many of those words entered the Dutch lexicon not through those languages directly, but rather as a result of their having been incorporated into another language called Bachuns. This was a kind of slang-filled street language spoken mostly in Amsterdam by criminals, traveling salesmen, and thieves. It was kind of an underground coded language, which became widely spoken in poorer parts of the city, which included many Jewish areas. As a result, many Yiddish and Hebrew words were picked up in Bachuns. Since it was mostly connected with the unsavory types in society, being a secret language developed to talk about nefarious activity in the open, many of these words have to do with sex and crime. Since then, many Bachun words have made their way into Dutch, and as a result, many of the original words have altered in meaning during the whole process and taken on negative connotations. To give you some examples, in Dutch, the word bias means prison. In the original Yiddish, however, bias means house. The word schmoos in Yiddish means message, but in Dutch, smoos means excuse. In Yiddish, the word tipple means to walk, whereas the same word in Dutch means street prostitution. And lastly, the Yiddish word schmier, which means guard, was transformed into smeerdus, which is a derogatory word for the police, kind of like calling them pigs. This is not to suggest that Dutch exclusively transformed words from Yiddish and Hebrew into negative things. Rather, the historical fact that so many people who were speaking Bachuns were from a lower social class means that these words are more informal language, which you would encounter on the street and where you'd find more people had turned to crime. There are other, more positive examples of loanwords from Yiddish and Hebrew, including mokum, which in Yiddish means place or town, but in Dutch is the slang name for Amsterdam. Another is the word chozer, which is an informal way of saying guy or dude, but comes from a Yiddish word meaning chosen one. The modern Dutch word tof, which is a really positive word meaning cool or nice, comes from the Hebrew word tov, which means good. Finally, in Amsterdam, it is not uncommon, though somewhat old-fashioned now, to hear people saying goodbye to each other by calling out muzzle, which comes from the Yiddish muzzle, meaning luck. So, if you ever get another night out in Mokum, when you say muzzle to a toffer choser, take a moment to recognize and appreciate the Yiddish and Hebrew influences which can be found in so much of the Dutch language. See you on the other side of this ad break. Having been moulded and grown by waves of immigration for millennia, in the late 16th century, the Dutch language started being transported around the world, primarily in the wake of the colonial mercantile empire that the Dutch Republic constructed from the 1580s onwards. 
As a result, Dutch place names and linguistic footprints can be found in the Americas, in Africa and Australasia. Dutch ships took hundreds of thousands of enslaved people from Africa to the ports and plantations in the Americas, such as Curaçao and Suriname, where they were bought, sold and forced to work. These places had significant colonies of Dutch-speaking settlers, and even in the post-independence era, Dutch remains an official language of Suriname. The same was true of Indonesia, which the Dutch also colonised and where they took over the local spice trade networks. To this day, local languages such as Bahasa include thousands of Dutch words. You can hear someone in Java call a bicycle a pit, which derives from the Dutch word for bicycle, feats. Actually, just as a random aside, since we've been speaking a lot about etymology and just mentioned the word feats, the Dutch word for bicycle, Nobody really knows where that word comes from. That's right. The bicycle, which is so intimately associated with the Low Countries that we wrote the first episode of this series about it, and which was only invented in the 19th century at a time when plenty of people were writing things down and taking note of new inventions, the Dutch word for bicycle, feats, has a completely mysterious origin. Isn't that weird? One suggestion is that it's a corruption of the French word for the original bicycle, velocipede. Which, I don't know. Even my mangled French can't mangle velocipede enough to make it sound like feats. But there you go, feats. Nobody knows where it came from. I'm also just really glad I got a chance to say velocipede again. Velocipede. (laughs) Anyway, back to it. In 1609, the Dutch East India Company hired an Englishman named Henry Hudson, who stepped on his ship, De Halfermann, in Amsterdam, not far from where the train station stands today. He embarked on a voyage aimed at finding a northwest passage through the Arctic to Asia. Having reached North America, he persistently pursued the elusive passage, but since it didn't actually exist, he ended up sailing up a big river that would later become known as the Hudson River. This laid the groundwork for his employers, the Dutch, to set about building a colony in the area, which they called New Netherland, in 1621. This would last until 1674. The colony was large, stretching across five of the eventual 13 colonies that would form the nascent United States of America. Even after the territories fell into English administration by the end of the century, there were still large and significant Dutch colonial settlers continuing to live and propagate there, lending their words and familiar place names from the homeland to a bunch of new settlements. In the main city of the colony, New Amsterdam, which was founded on the Manhattan Island, the Dutch settlers erected a defensive wall, which became known either as Valstraat, meaning Rampart Street, or Valstraat, with two A's, meaning Street of the Walloons. Walloons, of course, are the other major ethnic group of Belgium next to the Flemish, and there was a Wallonian demographic in the original Dutch settler population. Whatever the original meaning behind the name, today it is, of course, the centre of global trade, and, neatly, the descendant of the 17th century exchanges in Amsterdam, Wall Street. Another settlement within the New Netherlands colony was Flissinger, named after the large commercial town in Zeeland. Over time, this became shortened to Flissing, and eventually, what with the takeover of the British, was anglicised to Flushing. Whatever you may think of this change, it has to be said that getting rid of one syllable in the name 
certainly helped the writers of the theme song from the hit 90s sitcom, The Nanny. Imagine she was working in a bridal shop of Lissinger Queens. Doesn't quite flow. Other Dutch names that are littered around North America and particularly New York State today include Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Harlem, Brooklyn, which comes from Brokele, a town in Holland, Rhode Island, which comes from Rhode Island, meaning Red Island, Staten Island, named after the Parliament of the Dutch Republic, the state's general, and Coney Island, which was originally Canaan Island, meaning Rabbit Island. That Coney remained in the vernacular as a word for rabbit long into the American culture that developed thereafter is also a testament to the shifting influence of the Dutch language. You will also find many towns in North America with the suffix kill, such as Peekskill, Catskill, or Schaukel. That comes from the Middle Dutch word killer, meaning riverbed or creek. The US War of Independence had an indelible Dutch connection as well, with the rebels having sought and received financial and political support from the Dutch Republic and Dutch merchants, who were usually happy to antagonize the British when and where they could. Many Dutch-origin settlers served as patriots during the Revolution, including one Abraham van Buren. After the war, van Buren and his wife, Maria Hoes van Allen, gave birth to a son, Martin, in a place called Kinderhook, New York. Kinderhook being Dutch for children's corner. This child, Martin van Buren, became a politician, one of the founders of the Democrat Party, and in 1837 was elected as the 8th President of the Young Republic, becoming the first US President born after the Revolution, and the only US President who spoke English as a second language because he grew up speaking Dutch. At least he could speak English though. In other regions of the world, both lingering and stark fragments of Dutch language can be found. Australia, where the Dutch first arrived at the west coast 160 years before Captain Cook sailed into Botany Bay, was a mysterious and uncharted landmass to Europeans, known as Het Zuidland, the Southland, and then for a time as New Holland. In 1642, the Dutch seafarer Abel Tasman, but known to Australians as Abel Tasman, was sent by the Dutch East India Company on an epic voyage that took him below Australia, from west to east. He reached a piece of land occupied by an indigenous people called the Palawa, but which he arrogantly ignored, and named the place Van Diemen's Land, after the then governor of the Dutch East India Company, Antonis Van Diemen, who was paying his salary. Tasman followed the small south coast of this island that would later be renamed Tasmania after him, and continued across what is now called the Tasman Sea, finding a cluster of islands which he believed to be the Stuttenlande. This was the name a Dutch explorer had given to a group of islands he had seen on the tip of Argentina, a name which bore the same origin as Staten Island in New York, referring to the state's general parliament, and which today in Spanish is called Isla de los Estados. It was later proven the Tasman had not quite found these islands, the Stuttenlander of Argentina, but rather a whole new archipelago. And subsequently, cartographers in the Netherlands renamed the newly, yeah, discovered cluster after the Dutch province of Zeeland, Nova Zeelandia, or New Zealand. 
Meanwhile, on the other side of the world, but also the home of future Rugby World Cup champions, the Dutch created the outpost Kapstad, or Cape Town, in the 1650s as a way station on the southern tip of Africa by which their ships could be restocked and repaired as they went between Europe and Asia. It was not long before settlers were being encouraged to move to the Cape from Europe, and many of these were Dutch Protestants who were seeking a new Jerusalem for themselves. Out of this, the Afrikaner ethnic group emerged, and the descendants of the initial settlers came to be known, often with pride, as Boer, Boer being the Dutch word for farmer. The South African Cape was controlled by the Dutch until 1795, at which point the English took over, making it official in 1806. Like all colonizers, at their peak, the English treated basically every other group of people in their colonies with a fair bit of contempt. In the 19th century, many Afrikaners sought to leave the sphere of English administration around the Cape, and they set off to make their own domains, which they took by force and violence, and then called the Transvaal and Orange Free State. From 1879 to 1915, there were a multitude of violent ethnic clashes between various European settlers, native Africans, and other groups whose ancestors had been brought to South Africa generations before. The two Boer Wars that took place within this general series of conflicts between the English and the Afrikaners were early indicators of how extremely brutal modern warfare would be in the 20th century, complete with automatic rifles and concentration camps. Tensions between the Afrikaners and the ruling British remained prevalent into the 20th century, but in 1948, an historic general election saw the HNP, the Afrikaner Nationalist Party, take power, under the leadership of a cleric of the Dutch Reformed Church, Daniel Francois Milan. It was this party that enforced an atrocious systemization of oppressive racism on the millions in South Africa who were not white. And it was this party who therefore introduced one of the nastiest ever Dutch words to the global consciousness, apartheid, meaning separateness. One of the reasons that the Dutch Republic was able to compete on the global slavery and colonial circuit was that Dutch shipbuilders were arguably the best in Europe, if not the world. Dutch ships employed hundreds of thousands of people from all around Europe, Asia and the Americas, meaning that many English sailors were also working under Dutch captains or administrators and taking on Dutch maritime terms, notwithstanding that both languages do come from the same source. But everyday English words of a naval nature, like pump, skipper, sloop, smuggler, trigger, and yacht, all come from Dutch and were popularized in English during the time of Dutch maritime ascendancy. Somewhat surprisingly, the same can also said to be the case with modern Russian. In the 1690s, Tsar Peter the Great visited and lived in the Netherlands in Zandam and Amsterdam, working as a shipwright for four months. He was seeking to modernize Russia, and he knew that it would need a modern navy. He was also young and inquisitive, so he had gone to the Dutch Republic to learn about shipbuilding from the best. Upon returning to Russia, he employed hundreds of Dutch shipbuilders to come over and build this fleet, 
as well as to impart their knowledge on all things maritime to his subjects. Since Russia hadn't ever really had a proper modern navy, many nautical terms simply did not exist in Russian. As a result, they borrowed from the Dutch, who were teaching them. Some examples include the Russian word today for pennant, which is the flag that flies from a ship. It's called a, this is in my best Russian, vimpel, and it comes from the Dutch, vimpel. The word for a shipmate, sturman, comes from the Dutch, sturman, who was the person in charge of steering the ship, and the word for sea voyage in Russian is farvata, coming from the Dutch word for a navigable waterway, farvata. Also, interestingly, while the Russian words for north, east, south, and west are sever, yug, vostok, and zapad, it is common in Russian naval culture to read them off the compass as nord, zaud, ost, and vest. So as we've seen, the humble Dutch language has found many ways to influence other tongues. In English, it's actually more prominent than just the naval aspect. For instance, if you are aloof from your work right now, bluffing your boss by listening to this podcast while you are slurping your coffee with your pinky extended, or perhaps you have been furloughed because of the crisis and are sitting home snacking on cookies or maybe turning on the gas at your stove to make waffles while this podcast blares out of your computer speakers, blinking and thinking, Dutch seems like a really strange language, learning this will be a bit of a pickle, then you're in luck. Because if you understood what I just said, then you probably already know quite a few Dutch words simply because the English language has incorporated them. Just from that one very elongated sentence, the words aloof, bluff, boss, slurp, coffee, pinky, furlough, snack, cookie, gas, stove, waffle, blare, blink, pickle, and luck can all be traced back to Dutch. While the northern low countries embarked upon their path towards becoming an economic superpower throughout the 17th century, the southern low countries continued under Spanish Habsburg rule for another 150 years before passing to the Austrian Habsburg branch. Partly due to this constant foreign rule, Dutch was given a back seat in Flanders, with administrative affairs being conducted in French, and little public effort was made to preserve, protect, or standardize Dutch. During the 18th century, the social elite used French as a mark of their prestige and higher education was completely in French and Latin, so Dutch came to signify a social inferiority. As is the way with these things, however, the pendulum eventually swung back by the end of the 18th century, and a number of Brabantine and Flemish thinkers, writers, and creatives began to reassert the cultural standing of the Dutch language within their society. One of the most prominent among these was Jean-Baptiste Ferloy, a high-class jurist from southern Brabant. In 1788, he wrote his Verhandeling op Donacht der Moederlijke Taal in the Nederlanden, or Essay on the Disregard of the Native Language in the Low Countries, which complains about the neglect of Dutch in the southern Low Countries and its forced subjugation to French. With terrible timing for such a campaign, the southern Low Countries were then taken over by the revolutionary French forces six years later in 1794, and a year later the northern ones followed. 
However, after the defeat of Napoleon, the northern and southern provinces were united for the first time in two and a half centuries as the United Kingdom of the Netherlands under the rule of King Willem I. His bias was very much towards the northern, more predominantly Protestant Dutch, who received greater representation in both political and administrative affairs. As we mentioned earlier, Willem I also wanted to homogenize the United Kingdom's language, so as we saw earlier when he banned the speaking of Yiddish in synagogues and schools, he also sought to implement standardized Dutch across his realm. In the South, this was to the great displeasure of the French-speaking upper classes, but also of the Flemish Dutch speakers themselves. It only took 15 years for these, as well as a multitude of other grievances, to incite the southern part of the kingdom to assert its independence in 1830. In the decades after Belgian independence, French once again became the predominant language of the administration and the upper classes, and became the symbol of their independence battle against the Dutch. A stereotype arose of so-called backward Flemings who were comparatively poorer. But French was never forced upon the population as a whole, and an intellectually based Flemish movement gained steam throughout the 19th century. This paved the way for Flemish-based cultural funds and institutions, as well as Flemish newspapers and other publications. The first Flemish political party was formed in 1861, but it was not until 1898 that an equality law finally stipulated that Flemish-style Dutch was equal to French in Belgium. Today, the Kingdom of Belgium has three official languages, Dutch, French, and German, and is divided into four linguistic areas. These are the Dutch-speaking part, the French-speaking part, the German-speaking part, and the bilingual region of the capital city, Brussels. Approximately 55% of the Belgian population speaks Dutch as a first language, around 40% speaks French, and less than 1% speaks German. Although you are, of course, free to speak whichever language you wish privately, communication with your government must be done in the official language of whichever particular region you are in. The issue of language is a sensitive topic to many people in Belgium, and it's almost certain that we've offended every Belgian person in some way during our brief discussion of it here. But to put it simply, Flemish is a dialect of Dutch, and a Fleming is a Dutch-speaking Belgian person. A Dutch person and a Fleming can sit down and fairly comfortably have a conversation with one another. After a few beers, it becomes even more comfortable. But the Fleming will probably think that the Dutch person is loud and abrasive, and the Dutch person will probably wish that subtitles existed in real life. The Dutch language has continued to evolve in recent times too. In the 20th century, immigration to Belgium and the Netherlands of Moroccan, Turkish, Surinamese, Indonesian, and other so-called non-Western immigrants moving to both countries has impacted Dutch. Loan words from languages like Sranan and Papiamento, coming from Suriname and the Dutch Antilles, have entered the lexicon of Dutch straattaal, or street language, in different cities across the Netherlands. These include the words patas, meaning a pair of shoes, and mati, which is mate. Indeed, as has always been the case forever, immigrants into the low countries can and will continue to affect the language. As Australian immigrants, we feel it is our duty to do what we can to allow our own native words to seep into the vernacular. In the summer, my Dutch friends know full well that 
I'm going to eat brekkie, then go for a swim in my boardies, put my sunnies on, and then probably think about having a barbie. Every year, the famous Dutch dictionary, Fundala, celebrates the continual development of the Dutch language by awarding a word of the year voted upon by the public. The idea behind this was to honour words which were in that year either newly created or old words which had been repurposed to describe things which had happened that year. Think about it as a way of putting a magnifying glass up to the previous year linguistically and trying to map out real developments in society through the language which we all use. Even though Flemish is a dialect of Dutch, there are of course separate Dutch and Flemish words of the year. Some examples of words which have been selected in the past include Dachebert Duk Tux, which translates to Scrooge McDuck Tax, a tax on the ultra-wealthy, Blokkeerfries, which means something like Blockading Frieslander, a word to describe farmers from Friesland who use their tractors to prevent anti-Zwarte-Piet demonstrators from attending the national arrival of Sinterklaas into Dokkum in 2017, and uh, Tentsletcher, which was selected in 2010 in Belgium and describes a promiscuous woman who likes to enjoy herself at a festival, generally speaking, in a tent. Although we could probably write an entire podcast episode about what each of these words tells us about different aspects of the different cultures between the Netherlands and Belgium. Instead, we will finish off today by pondering what the Dutch and Flemish words of the year from 2020 can tell us about said difference. Those words selected are, respectively, under half a meter zamenleving and knuffelkontakt. If you don't speak Dutch or Flemish and aren't already familiar with these words, it will probably not surprise you to learn that they are both related to the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic. The Dutch word under half a meter zamenleving translates directly into English as the one and a half meter society, a reference to the government's recommendations that people must remain at least one and a half meters from one another as much as possible to prevent the spread of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. During his first crisis-related televised address to the nation in March 2020, Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte announced that the Netherlands had to begin transitioning into a one-and-a-half-metre society, and the word has become synonymous with the crisis ever since. It's a practical word, used to describe the practical measure of keeping physical distance between yourself and your loved ones to prevent the transmission of a potentially deadly disease, and in that regard is indeed the perfect word for a nation of people who pride themselves on their straightforward practicality. But if you ask me, it's somewhat staid and somber, and constantly being reminded that you have to keep apart from others definitely doesn't help with the feelings of isolation which so many people have suffered from during the extended coronavirus lockdowns. Compare it to the word which the Flemish chose, knuffelkontakt, which directly translates into English as something like cuddle buddy. Under the stringent lockdown measures which Belgium enforced during the pandemic, having a knuffelkontakt remained a basic right for every person. Even though outsiders were barred from every household, the exception was one knuffelkontakt at a time per person who could come and hang out without keeping social distance. That's right, while the Dutch emphasised getting as much distance from each other as they could, the Belgians emphasised that they have cuddled their way through the crisis. 
And so we will end things here today. As we have hopefully shown, the Dutch language is a fluid and ever-changing thing, drawing in and pushing out linguistic influences and nuances from other people and places, much like the waters which flow in and out of the region. But despite the wide-ranging vocabulary and many complexities within the language, as immigrants to the Netherlands, we must maintain that in order to at least bluff your way through Dutch, all you really need to know is a few specific words. You don't even need to know what they mean, just how to say them, and then interject with them whenever somebody in the Netherlands is giving you their opinion, whether you ask for it or not. Those words are lekker, leuk, jammer, helaas, serieus, top, gezellig. And of course, when it's over, you can just end with the all-important doei, doei. Do you want to know more about Flemish and Dutch history and culture? Visit www.the-low-countries.com. This podcast is made by Republic of Amsterdam Radio. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.